You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our passage this morning is John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Pastor Joey. I am one of the pastors here at Citizens Church, and uh, let me go ahead and welcome you, and thank you for coming out and worshiping with us this morning. We're in John chapter 14. I invite you to turn your Bibles and go there. We are entering and or continuing our study in the Gospel of John, specifically in John's story of Jesus, we're in what commentators and theologians call the final discourse. This is Jesus' last speech. And in this last speech, he is reassuring his disciples, you and I who have called upon his name and follow him, he's reassuring us that until the time that he returns, because Jesus is about to go to the cross, his departure, his departure is imminent, and so he is giving us assurance that it's going to be okay. He's given us the promise that we will be together again in glory. There's going to be this amazing family reunion in the end that we have to look forward to. But also today, he pivots, and he commissions us with a mission. He tells us that while he is absent, while he is reigning in heaven above, we are to represent him now on earth. He has this incredible mission that he places in your hands and in my hands. But also along with this mission is an incredible promise, an incredible promise that we are resourced with something that is going to make our mission as followers of Jesus, representatives of him, successful. We are going to move out into the world in his name, victorious and triumphant, succeeding in what we do because of the incredible promise that's located in these verses. Now listen, sometimes when you preach a sermon, you come across a passage and it's just a message that you hope changes everything for the church that you serve in. This message today, I'm, I'm like kind of stuffing all my hopes into this, all my dreams into this one sermon, no pressure on me, right? I hope that this sermon just changes our culture, changes our mindset and attitude here at Citizens Church. I hope that everything changes really based upon this sermon. This sermon really is the culmination of a journey that I personally have been on for probably the last six months. So hopefully you'll see a lot of passion oozing out of me as we enter into this passage today. So here's our three points, our three points for today that we're going to go over. First, we're commissioned for the mission of God. We're to pray for the mission of God and be ready for the mission of God. We're commissioned for the mission of God, praying for the mission of God, and readiness for the mission of God. Those are our three points we'll walk through today. Before we do that, let's go ahead now, though, and pray and ask God to be with us in this time. So, Father, we come to you, and we need you. We need your grace. We need your promises. We need your Holy Spirit. We need your truth. We need everything that you have, God, to help us to walk forward into this vision for life the mission that is before us. God, you're calling each and every single one of us to be owned by you, 
to be sold out to you and to live a life that's devoted to you and your mission for your glory. And so God, resource us today. Train us and teach us today. Father, I pray that you'd strengthen our faith, that we might believe in your promises. Strengthen our faith that we would believe in your word. Strengthen our faith that we might hold tightly to your truth. God, we need you. So Father, use today to change us. In your name I pray, amen. All right, let's talk about the mission of God. We are commissioned for the mission of God. It says in verse 12 this, truly, truly, meaning what you're about to hear is unbelievable. You might not believe it at first, but I really mean it. Truly, truly, I say to you, here's what's unbelievable. You ready? Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So plain, plainly speaking, what's the mission of Jesus? He's handing off to us. What's the mission? It's to do what he did. The works that he did, we, are, we have to do them now. That's the mission, plain and simple. But I want to back it up a little bit and show you kind of like the nature of this mission, break it down a little bit more in detail. Go back to verse 10, verses 10 and 11. And as you look at these verses, and this is a helpful tip on just how to read the Bible and get the most out of your Bible reading, always look for repetition. And what we're going to see is repetition of a few different words in verses 10 and 11, and then in verse 12. So verse 10 says this. Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. He says, do, not be, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So if you're paying attention, what you'll see is the repetition of the word believe and works and words. Jesus says, look to his words to believe if he and the Father are one. Then he says, if that's not enough, look to his works to believe if he and the Father are one. Then he turns to us in verse 12 and says what? Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So there's kind of the sequence that emerges here. Jesus says, look at my words, look at my works to believe that I and the Father are one, and I'm going to point you to the Father if you believe in me. Now, the next sequence is for those of you who have believed in my works and words and therefore believe that I am the way to the Father, now you go do those same works and words. See that? There's this sequence here. That's Jesus's mission. Just as Jesus was sent to earth to point everybody back to the Father, to reveal who the Father is in his living and his doing, that's our mission now, to point everybody back to the Father, to be living testimony of how great Jesus is, because the more we exalt Jesus, the more the Father is revealed. So the mission that we are commissioned with is to use the totality of our lives. I mean, think about everything at your disposal in your life, your opportunities, your authority, your position, your decisions, your resources, your calendar, your relationships. Use everything at your disposal to do what Jesus did, to testify to the Father, to point everybody back to the Father. Let me just uh, read from you Matthew chapter 5. Here's how Jesus puts it elsewhere. Here's how we ought to live. Matthew 5 says this, you are the salt of the earth. And Saul did a lot of things in the ancient times, but pretty much it made everything better. You're supposed to make everything better and therefore point people to the Father. You all are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's the mission. Let everybody see your life, how different it is, how powerful it is, how attractive it is, and then point them back to the Father. You're that city on a hill. You're the salt of the earth. Your life, your works and your words, everything that you're doing, the totality of your life is meant to point people back to God. Now, I'm sure you're wondering right now, does Jesus mean that we should do miracles? Like, should we be doing the miracles that he did? And I'm not going to take time to teach on miracles right now because I really don't want to distract us from, I think, what is central to the mission of God. If you want to find out what I think about that, you can look in the manuscript, which is online. I have a very long academic footnote in there for you for my position on miraculous gifts. I'll just say I think they have their time and place. I think they have their time and place. But I think what is central to Jesus' mission is what he spent most of his time doing. Do you know what Jesus spent most of his time doing? Having deep and intentional relationships with people. I mean, think about all of Jesus' activity. He showed compassion to the poor and the sick. He had intentional conversations. He ate intentional meals. He went where he was needed by people. He washed feet, and ultimately he died for us. I mean, everything that Jesus does is for the sake of other people to bless people, to lift people up, to point them to the Father. And so that's what your mission is, to use the totality of your life for the sake of other people, to die to yourself every single day so that people might just look through you and see the Father. That's what the mission of Jesus is. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus is called a rabbi and a teacher, and he has his disciples here. And back in ancient times, if you were a follower of a rabbi, the expectation was you would just mimic what he does. You would be taught how he is, what he does over the course of time, and then you would graduate and you would copy what he did. You'd enter into his school of thoughts, and that would be the life's work ahead of you. And so we are disciples of Jesus. We ought to copycat, mimic his ministry, his life. Jesus says in John chapter 20, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. There it is in a nutshell. If you want to get straightforward, plain and simple about what the mission of God is, just as Jesus was sent to do what he did for the glory of the Father, you're sent now to do exactly what he did for the same glory of the Father. Now, that's pretty incredible. Like, we are entrusted with outstanding things. Like, what a great purpose. What a great destiny that's been placed in your lap to live as Jesus lived for the glory of the Father. Now, it gets even more incredible because what else does he say in verse 12 there? Greater things. So you won't only do the same things that Jesus did. We're going to do greater things than Jesus did. Verse 12, greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, what does it mean that our works will be greater than Jesus's because I've never walked on water and I don't expect to. 
I've never raised anyone from the dead, and I don't expect, I don't, I don't expect to multiply some bread and fish and feed 15,000 people. I don't expect that to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. So what does Jesus, Jesus mean here by doing greater works than even he did? He doesn't mean more in quantity, like we're going to do just more stuff. What he means is more in quality, specifically more effective. Like our ministry is going to be more effective than Jesus's. And he says, it's because I am going back to the Father. What that statement means, what that phrase means in verse 12 is that Jesus's work is finished. He's died. He's resurrected. He's ascended back to the Father. His work is finished. And so now whatever ministry has been entrusted to us, it's on the basis of the finished work of Jesus. And that's really important. So let me explain this. Let me just kind of tease this out for you. Jesus' entire ministry is understood fully when the cross occurs. And the cross is only fully understood because of Jesus' ministry. There's this dynamic, illuminating relationship between Jesus' three years of earthly ministry and his death on the cross. There's a dynamic relationship that there, that's held there. Jesus' ministry, it was a purposeful buildup of mystery and anticipation that would only make sense in the cross. And the cross only makes sense because of the long and slow build up to it. So when we come to verse 12 and we read that we will do greater works because Jesus is going to the Father, that means since Jesus died, rose, ascended, his work is finished, and now there's no more mystery. Now there's no more anticipation or buildup. The thing that Jesus is working towards, all of his earthly ministry, the cross, and what it reveals and what it offers, we have that right now. There is no wait. There is no mystery. There is no buildup. We have exactly what he was working towards all along. So now our ministry, it has more potency. It has more effectiveness than even Jesus's because we are testifying to what Jesus was working towards all along. I mean, think about this. When Jesus declared somebody to be forgiven, which he did a number of times, you know, rise, you are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, he would say. People would wonder, how can he do that? How can he just like make that verdict and declare that you're forgiven right here on the spot? Well, that statement from Jesus only made sense when the cross actually happened. He retroactively applies forgiveness, but we don't have to wait. We can offer forgiveness right here right now. Legitimate, full atonement to people right here, right now. The wait is over. When Jesus turned water to wine, it was to show that his blood would usher in a new era that was better than the previous. A new covenant era where we have like relationship with God that is filled with joy and peace and triumph. But Jesus was working towards bringing that into reality. His, blood, his death on the cross sealed that and ratified that. We don't have to wait. There is no buildup for us. We can offer people new covenant life, reconciliation with God, and all the joy that's in the kingdom of God right here, right now. There is no more wait. There is no anticipation. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead as a sign that points to his own resurrection, which promises us resurrection life. That was the buildup. It took a long time to sort of play that out so we might know exactly what his death and resurrection achieved, but the wait's over for us. We can offer people resurrection life right now. So the reason why our works are greater than Jesus's, our ministry is greater than even Jesus's ministry. That's not my words, that's his words, okay? The reason why that's the case is because we can make a beeline to the gospel. 
We can tell people the full picture of Jesus, the full kingdom, the full story right here, right now, make a beeline to the gospel. So I hope you see what a great mission we have been entrusted with. It's incredible. Now, here's the honest take on this verse when we read verse 12. We often try to soften this verse and wiggle out of it because surely Jesus doesn't really mean this, right? And Jesus can't really be, be serious, right? This is like hyperbole. This is exaggerated language to prove a point, right? I think that's what we, how we read this typically. We try to play it down and soften it because here's why. If Jesus actually promised this, and, and don't be mistaken, this is a promise. Verse 12 is a promise. If Jesus really promised this, then I couldn't use the possibility of failure or the hopelessness of our society as an excuse not to try. Like we often just see failure as an inevitable outcome to stuff, and that usually lets us off the hook. Jesus says, there's no failure. There's, there's, no, there's no failure on the horizon. There's only triumph on the horizon. So we can't let ourselves off the hook. We'd like to, but we can't. Jesus expected us to do what he did. If that's true, I'd have to give up a lot of things. Mm, things might get pretty inconvenient. I might have to die to myself a whole lot and give up a lot of things, and so we try to wiggle out of it. Well, this is a promise of Jesus. This is an expectation of Jesus. Jesus really means what he says. Let me just go back to verse 12 to sell you on this point. It says in verse 12, whoever, underline that word, whoever, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works. What that word whoever means, I looked up in the Greek, I did some, some study, it means whoever. <laughs> so it's not the apostles. It's not just a few select men. It's not just uh, pastors. It's not just ministers, professional ministers. It's all of us. Whoever believes in Jesus has this mission in their hands, and they've been entrusted with it. In John, actually, we see this phrase, whoever believes in me, over and over and over again. John 6, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 7, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 11, whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall yet live. John 12, whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. John 14, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works. So if you believe that Jesus, if, when Jesus says, whoever believes in me, you can be saved. You can experience redemption. You can experience life in the age to come. Like we believe those promises. We take those words very seriously. Whoever believes in these things can have access to these amazing promises of Jesus. And we come to this verse, whoever believes in me will do greater works than I have is commissioned to, to live the life I've lived. It's just as true and legitimate as any of the things we've read previously in the Gospel of John. Now, here's what we need to realize. The mission that Jesus hands off to the apostles, you know, they're the first group of men to take this on and press into the world with this vision for life. They changed the world. Literally, they, they shook the world to its core. Nothing was ever the same after this group of men were charged with this mission. They took seriously the promises of Jesus. They took seriously the expectations of Jesus. And so they went from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. And when you follow the story of the apostles all throughout the book of Acts, do you know what happens? People get saved in droves. Uh, societies 
are literally just like turned upside down, all the priorities and values in these different cultures and places that the apostles went. Everything just gets flipped on its head and you end the book of Acts and you know what Paul's about to get ready to do? To go before Caesar to preach the gospel. Like when you read Acts, the whole, it's a story of how a small group of uneducated, poor fishermen change the world because they believe in the promises and expectations of Jesus. It's no different now. That same potential and expectation and promise is given to each one of us. So that mission is the mission, the mission that we're commissioned with. It's been placed in our hands. And it's incredible and incredibly hard. <laughs> so my question now is how do we perform these greater works? You know, how do we live this kind of life? How do we have a ministry, a lifestyle of ministry that's looking like Jesus, but with even greater effectiveness? And the answer Jesus gives, how we do this, how we're going to do this, is answered prayer. We pray to God and we ask God and He answers our prayers and that's how this whole thing happens. Now, that might be something you think doesn't really connect, like prayer and the mission of God, the relationship there, I don't see the connection. That might be what you're thinking, but I assure you it does connect. Because how do you think Jesus moved powerfully through the world, ready at all times to bless and preach and heal and help? He never grew frustrated. He was never cynical. He was never uh, hopeless over the lostness that he saw, the opposition that he faced every single day. Instead, Jesus was resilient. He was confident in his mission. How? It's because he prayed. <laughs> he prayed and expected the Father to answer his prayers. And he was ready to receive the answer to his prayers at all times. He was living with that sort of sensitivity and expectation that everywhere he went, his prayers that he has already asked of the Father were going to be granted and given to him. And he was ready, therefore, to receive whatever might be brought about before him. The more you understand prayer, the more missional you will be in your living. I'm telling you that. So let's go ahead and dig into prayer. What is prayer? We're praying for the mission, verses 13 through 14. Jesus says this, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We, we read the word whatever there in verse, thir thir uh, verse 13. That's some of the word whoever that we read before. Whoever believes in these things will do the same works that I do in greater works. And now he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Incredible promise. Now, this promise is not like ask anything of God that you'd like. Ask anything of God that's on your heart or in your imagination, he's going to do it for you. Like prayer is not a lever in the sky that we pull. This promise, this is a really important point. This promise is given within the context of the mission of God. He's talking about his mission and what he wants to do in the world and what he wants to do through us in our different environments and spaces. He wants to answer those prayers. Whatever you ask in my name for the mission of God in the world, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So whatever we want in the mission of God and whatever we need to do the mission Jesus says, we will receive by prayer. And we read the book of Acts. And again, we see the triumph and success of the ministry of the church. And we think, that could never happen now. That's, we're way too far gone. We're way too secular. We're way too post-Christian, post-modern. We think that can never happen today. Someone who doesn't understand prayer would think that. 
look, there's not some conspiracy at play. Jesus really means what he says. It's not just bold words to make us pray. It's not like propaganda to convince us to be more pious. This is a prayer, this is a promise that he will answer our prayers for his mission that he's commissioning us uh, us on. One other uh, qualification or criteria that we have to know is he says, this all hinges on what? That you have to pray in his name. Whatever you pray in my name, you will receive. So we have to understand what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? We do that pretty casually. We do that all the time. But what are we actually doing when the words off our lips fall off our lips? We pray, I say this in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. What's really, what should be happening theologically in our minds as we're saying those words, okay? It all hinges on Jesus' name. And so what does that mean, praying in Jesus' name? First, Jesus' name should remind us that it is only by Jesus that we can approach the Father. So praying in Jesus' name is a reminder to us of the basis of our invitation and favor with God. We pray with anticipation and expectation for the mission of God, not because of our goodness, as if we performed so well and been so holy and done our part, and so now God has to honor us and, and meet us halfway or something. And also our expectation and confidence in prayer, it's not deterred by our badness, how unfaithful we've been, how we have come up short a lot. Like our confidence before God that he will give us what we need in his mission, it's not on the basis of our name for good or bad. It's on the basis of Jesus's perfection and his victory on the cross. Now, here's what you got to know. Throughout the Old Testament, humanity uh, awaited a son of God who would keep the law, represent humanity as this ideal human, our champion, who would then secure the favor of God. Israel longed for a son of God. Adam was called a son of God. Even the nation of Israel is called a son of God. David was called a son of God. There's this anticipation throughout the whole Old Testament story that we're waiting for an individual, a son of God, who will represent God to us, immediate us to God, who will keep the law perfectly and secure for us by his obedience and by his life the favor and blessings of God forever. Of course, that never happened. That's why Israel continued to be exiled and alienated from God over and over again because there was no perfect son of God until Jesus steps on earth, until Jesus comes to earth. Now we have our champion. Now we have our son of God who lived the perfect life we never could have and by his perfect obedience secures for us the favor and blessings of God forever. So we approach God in prayer, expectant, anticipatory prayer, on the basis of that name, the name of Jesus, the perfect Son of God who has secured all of the promises of God and all the blessings in favor of God for us. Second, praying in Jesus' name should remind us that Jesus is our older brother and therefore God is our very Father. God is our Father and He has chosen to reveal Himself first and foremost before anything as a Father. Now think about that. God wants us to relate to him as a child to a father. And he has gone so far to get us to understand who he is by creating fatherhood and family and having that experience be something for all of us so we can have the reality of who he is as our father reinforced in our hearts. Now, nothing has taught me more about prayer than being a dad. Seriously. I don't know if that sounds like untheological or unbiblical, but it's just true. Nothing has taught me more about prayer than being a dad. Last week, Harper, uh, she kept interrupting me when I was trying to write my sermon. We were out of town. It was like a working trip. And so I was 
somewhere trying to just get my sermon done. She kept coming in the room and interrupting me. I kept sending her back out and she kept finding her way back in. And she comes up and sits on the bed and I'm like, yes, what is it, Harper? And she says, dad, I want to spend time with you. Now, my daughter's three. She doesn't say stuff like that. And now what's going to happen? Like, what am I going to say to that? My heart's going to melt in less than a second and I'm going to close my laptop and I'm going to just do whatever she wants. Like, I'm done. It's over. It's over. And my one-year-old Nora, uh, she's starting to walk now and she'll get this look on her face like this, like, um, I don't know what's the right word. It's here in my notes. I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. I don't know. She has this mischievous look on her face. Okay? She wants to wrestle. She wants to come over me and she just wants to fall on top of me and play with me. And no matter what I'm doing, you know, I'm reading a book, I put my book down and I'm going to wrestle with my one-year-old daughter. When my children earnestly want something, it's a joy for me to give it. It just is. And it doesn't take, I mean, I'm a, I'm a sinful person. And so it takes a little bit uh, you know, time and breaking me down to move my heart, but God has, doesn't have the issues I have. He's not fatigued. He's not too busy. He's not anxious about anything. The Father heart of God is easily moved by his children. Matthew 6 tells us this. Matthew 6 tells us to pray to God as a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And that's, that's like, that's, that's a, a verse that's not attached to a promise. That's just in general in life. God loves us and wants to give us good gifts as a father if we pray to him. Now the qualification there, if you're listening, is good gifts. Some things that you and I want that we pray for would not be good gifts if we received them. Because we think they'd be awesome, but they might totally crush us or we might totally become consumed by them. What we think is like candy might actually just rot our teeth. And so God's not going to give us what's bad for us, but he will always give us what's good for us. He wants to give us what's good for us. And what's good for us? Obedience. Faithfulness to his vision and mission, fulfilling his promises that he's made to us, that we will do the works of Jesus, even greater things. And what we ask in Jesus' name, he will give us. So praying in Jesus' name, it assures my heart that I am a child of the Father, and because I'm a sibling of Jesus, I can pull on my Father's heartstrings. And God loves to answer those prayers. Third, praying in Jesus' name also brings to mind all the promises of God that find their yes in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Knowing what God has promised, that Jesus has secured all of those promises, that drives us to prayer with bold expectation. And it should also filter out what we should not be contending for, what we should not be praying for. Because what he has given us to pray for with full assurance is his promises. So here's a little tip. If you want to have a powerful prayer life where you're contending with God, wrestling with God, that we might see him move in our life for his mission on earth, you have to know his promises. You have to know his word. You have to have a mind that is saturated with scripture if you want to have a, a powerful and effective prayer life. Otherwise, you don't know what to pray. So we pray the promises of God. That's what Jesus' name tells us. Lastly, praying in Jesus' name checks our heart. It keeps our heart in check. Is this prayer for his name that you're offering? Is, his, is this prayer that you're offering for the exaltation of his name? Does this prayer that you're offering match everything that Jesus' name stands for? 
Is this prayer that you're offering for His glory or for your own? Go back to verse 13. It's in there. It says, pray that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We pray in the name of Jesus so that everything His name stands for is upheld and advances. And as the name of Jesus is upheld and advanced, the Father is revealed and glorified. So look, if our prayers are concerned, are not, are not concerned about the Father being glorified in the Son, then you should not expect those prayers to be answered. But if we pray with the desire of our heart that the Father be glorified in the Son through the fulfilling of His promises, then pray and pray boldly with expectation. So the qualifications are met. We're praying for the mission of God in the name of Jesus for the Father's glory through the Son. If those things are shaping your prayer, then let it rip. Then have at it. Then pray fervently and pray frequently. Pray expectantly for the mission that God has sent us on. You know, there's been, the past few decades, I'm thankful for the law of the strengthening of theology and a return to solid doctrine that the church has made. But I think one place we are anemic is prayer. We don't really understand prayer and how it works. And so therefore, we often are talking about God and uh, talking about prayer and thinking about prayer very sheepishly, very timidly. We think it's arrogant. We think it's entitled to ask God for, to move and to expect Him to move as if it's theologically incorrect. But God answers prayer. He tells us he wants to answer our prayer. It's our birthright as his children to have answered prayer. It's theologically correct to pray expectantly. James 4, James 5, excuse me, says this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man just like you and I. What did Elijah do? He prayed fervently that it might, might not rain and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. John Calvin, you know, Calvinism, Calvin, okay? John Calvin, which, hey, I love all five points. If there are seven, I believe him, okay? John Calvin says this about this verse, about, about us praying, just like Elijah. He says this. It was a notable event for God to put heaven in some sense, under the control of Elijah's prayers, to be obedient to his requests. By his prayers, Elijah kept heaven shut for, t- for three years and a half. Then he opened it and made it suddenly pour with a great rain, from which we may see the miraculous power of prayer. So just like Elijah challenged God and prayed seven times until rain clouds appeared in the distance, just like Jacob wrestled with God all night till he received his blessing, just like Moses prayed and held God and held, to, and held God to answer on the basis of his reputation, and just like Jesus publicly called on God to glorify himself and raise Lazarus from the dead, we should approach God with expectant confidence in prayer. Martin Luther described his prayers for his ailing friend Philip Melanchthon like this. Listen here, this is Martin Luther. I attacked the Almighty with his own weapons, quoting from Scripture all the promises I could remember that my prayers should be granted, and I said that he must grant my prayer if I was henceforth to put my faith in his promises. That's bold expectation. 
Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, says prayer is a wrestling with God that will prevail at length and we shall have such a sight of him. Jonathan Edwards called this kind of prayer the blessed struggle. Charles Spurgeon said prayer moves the arm that moves the world. Andrew Murray said God is waiting, delighting to bestow these blessings in answered prayer. John Knox famously cried out and declared in prayer, give me Scotland or I die. John Wesley, uh, his prayer life was radically changed when he saw the persecuted Moravian church in Germany crying out to God, asking God to deliver them, approaching God with bold expectation. And he returned to the United States. That night, he gathered his brother Charles, George Whitfield, and 60 other friends to pray all night and contend with God. And he writes, at 3 a.m., we were continuing, continuing in prayer until the power of God Almighty came upon us in such a way that many cried out and fell to the ground. And as soon as, we, as soon as we were recovered from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. And 10 years later, Wesley, as a pastor, wrote in his journal about a mother who was sorrowing without hope for a, a prodigal son who had walked away from the faith. And he advised her and said, wrestle with God for his soul. And then in two days, God brought home the wandering sheep, fully convinced of the error of his ways. The leaders of, of the first great awakening, John and Charles Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, they believed it was not irreverent to be obstinate and grapple with God in prayer. Now the last known awakening, like the last movement of God that we've known of was in the 1950s in an island off the coast of Scotland called the Hebrides. It was called the Hebrides Revival. It was birthed out of prayer. It was said that children would awake to the sound of parents agonizing in prayer in the middle of the night for their children. It was said that people would walk by barns and hear groups of old men gathering, weeping in prayer to save their community and move in their community. So what does the mission of God require us to pray? What does the mission of God re require you to pray? Nothing less than for God to move forward powerfully and to use whatever you have and whatever you are. And whatever you are not and whatever you have not, ask for. And you know, we talk about revival Every revival we've witnessed, first, second great awakening, revival in the Hebrides, different movements throughout history, revival has always come at a time when the church was in massive decline, when there were great moral failures in the church, when everybody was disillusioned with the church, and when there was a great unraveling and breakdown in society. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then and only then, when it was desperate. Like when there was no hope, then and only then did Christians realize that we just can't strategize our way out of this. Like we can't like get a whiteboard and figure out how to, how to make sense of this mess and crawl out of this hole. It was, revivals in history have come at a point where only God could save us, where only God can move, where he's our only last and final hope. The only option we have to see things turn around is if God will move and he's promised he will if we ask. So do you believe God can move? Like, do you believe that God wants to move? 
Do you believe that he will move? Do you expect him to answer that prayer? I think our prayer life is scarce because we think there's no hope or because we've put our hope for change in something else. There's a guy named Leonard Ravenhill. He wrote this book called Why Revival Tarries. He's an old school 1920s fundamentalist. He was intense, but he knew about prayer. He got prayer right. Now here's what he writes in his book. He says, God honors not wisdom or personality, but faith. Faith honors God and God honors faith. He said, I've heard it said, it's not what you know these days that matter, but whom you know. I do not pretend to know how real that reasoning is in the business world, but I am absolutely sure it is right in the spiritual realm. The only way a movement of God occurs in our lifetime before our eyes is if we really believe that that God's capable of that, that God wants to do that, that God's excited to do that, that God will do that. It's not about us. It's not about our plans. It's not about the bolt. It's not about the measure of our faith. It's about who we think God is. Like, do you believe that God wants this? That God can do this? That God is capable of this? Jesus wants us to be that like that uh, that widow in Luke chapter nine. Remember that story where he tells this parable of a widow who goes before an unjust judge, constantly beating him down with her petitioning that he might give her justice that he might answer her plea. And he says, we ought to pray like that. And the whole point of that parable is not so much that we're beating, that we're beating someone down with our prayers. I mean, that's in there. But the whole point of the parable is that's true of an unjust judge. He finally relented and gave in because of her petitioning. How much better is our God? More loving, more powerful, more, more ready to move is our God. Now look, Prayer is not a talisman. It's not like a rabbit's foot. It's not like a lever we pull and ta-da, we get what we want. It is a covenantal conversation that God is awaiting to have with us where we get to speak to God Almighty and hold him to his own words and his own reputation and his own glory, honoring him as the only hope and who alone has the power to change anything. Look, when you're in covenant, a covenant relationship, there's promises made, you get to be direct. Rebecca can tell me when I'm dropping the ball as a husband because I promised her that I wouldn't do that. So we get to ask God to move because he promised he would, he promised that he wants to. But here's the thing. You must persist. The, the, the historian's old school theologians call this travailing prayer. We must travail and keep going and persist in our prayers. Do you know why? Otherwise, if if God did give us what we wanted in a day, in a snap of a finger, you wouldn't know it was from God. You'd think it was you somehow, and you'd take the glory. We'd become inflated and forget that we need him and soon fall on our face, and whatever embers of revival began would be extinguished. You must persist. You and I must persist in prayer, maybe for generations, like maybe for decades. Until then, it's not safe for God to give you what you ask for because you might miss that it's him and you might forget that you need him. And if it's left up to you, we can't handle it. So is God limited? Does he lie? Hasn't he promised to answer prayer for his mission? Isn't it his heart to save? 
I think we have no excuses but to move forward with complete confidence on the basis of Jesus' name for the Father's glory, that we will receive what we ask for in the mission of God that is ahead of us. So my third point here as we close is this. We need to be ready. Our lives should be marked by a readiness to receive answered prayer, readiness in mission. So are you ready to receive what you're asking God for in the mission? Because if you are, then your life is going to be marked by radical obedience and trust. Like if you really believe that God is going to say yes to your prayers for his mission in Jesus' name, doesn't that alter the way you live? Like you begin moving throughout the world prepared at the drop of a dime to respond to what you see God doing, ready to receive the yes from God. It means you're going to live as if what you're asking for is on its way. Hudson Taylor, which his, his biography is called uh, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Buy it, read it, okay? He records a time when he was old, destitute, sick in bed, couldn't move, funds were low for the mission. And Hudson Taylor, he decided to, pre- he decided to press on into the interior of China anyway, even though they had no money. And like all these missionaries needed a paycheck. They needed to eat. They needed to provide for the families. They had no money, but he decided to send them on deeper into inland China. And he said this, why he did that. I do so hope to see some of the destitute provinces evangelized before long. I long for it by day and pray for it by night. Can God care any less? Two months later, he was written a letter with the exact amount of money he needed designated for fresh provinces. And actually, the letter was written before he ever prayed for it. So if you know what God wants to do, you pray for it and move forward ready to receive it. Another time in his life, the cook told Hudson Taylor that they were on their last bag of rice, and he replied, then the Lord's time for helping us must be close at hand. That's just the way Hudson Taylor lived his life. He just moved through the world prepared for God to meet whatever need was felt for his own mission. He made decisions on the basis of forthcoming answered prayer. So are you ready to live like you're about to receive answered prayer? Are you ready to move out into the world prepared to receive the yes from God that you're praying for, for his mission in Jesus' name, for his glory? What does that look like? What does it look like to move out into the world prepared to, to, to receive the yes to your prayers? Several different things. It looks like repentance of sin so that within you, there's sensitivity to the Spirit of God so you can walk around under the control of His truth, the control of His assurances, the control of His promises, rather than frenzied and insecure by the lies of the world and the enemy in your own guilt-ridden conscience. It looks like repentance of sin, so there's sensitivity to God. It looks like reading Scripture, so that God's Word's on the tip of your tongue. It looks like reading books and listening to podcasts and sermons, so that you're trained, useful in ministry, ready to move out into the world powerfully and effectively. It looks like worship in all its forms, so that we are strong and ready for whenever God does move. Use whatever willpower that you have to put yourself into position, to receive the power you don't have. So it means I'm going to church on Sunday. 
I'm reading scripture every morning. I'm gathering with other Christians in community. When I am weak, they will be strong for me. It means I'm receiving all the means of grace that are at my disposal so I can be empowered to move out faithfully and, and, and ready and be ready. It looks like leveraging the rhythms of my life, my family's life, so that we're already so that what we're already doing can be used by God to invite people into it and create conversations. Let my good works be seen. Let our good works be seen by men so they may glorify God on the day he returns. It looks like looking people in the eye and actually smiling at people and being friendly and being inviting because you never know what can happen. You never know what conversation can take place. It looks like walking around prayerful, watchful, ready, Ephesians 6 says, we are fitted with the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's an incredible verse. We're walking around in the world fitted with shoes, the readiness of the gospel of peace. Are you walking around anticipating at every turn and every conversation an answer to your prayers? That God might save, that God might draw, that God might move in that conversation. Are you moving around in the world anticipating that? Ready. And lastly, it looks like making bold decisions in faith, commitments in faith on the basis of forthcoming answer prayer. I'm telling you, it's, it's a night and day difference when you move out into the world expectant that God is going to answer prayer and move. That's a night and day difference in your life because it makes you watchful, ready, and on point. Without that expectation and anticipation, you miss what God is doing right in front of you. Now, imagine, we're wrapping up here soon, guys, I promise. Imagine a whole church community, not just you individually, me individually, but a whole church community believing this promise of answered prayer, believing this promise of successful mission, and having that expectation, like living with that expectation within our very culture and community as a church. Can I tell you something? That church, the gates of hell tremble. That church, they, hell knows our name. And we can be that church. The pastors here, we really want to make prayer central to this church, to our church. And so we're not preaching and teaching on prayer merely to tell you what, what the Word says, we want to charge you to obey it. We want to obey this as a community. And so, how awesome is God and God's providence? It just so happens that on the calendar, we have a prayer night this Wednesday. We're not doing small groups. Every quarter, we don't do small groups one week, and we instead have, we gather here uh, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. for a prayer night. And so come. Come. And let's contend and wrestle with God that He might move in our time and deliver on his promises for his glory. We're doing one other thing. We're doing one other thing. We're starting something else. Thursdays at 6 a.m. Oh, you'll need the Spirit of God, yes. <laughs> Thursdays at 6 a.m., starting a weekly prayer meeting here at the church in the lobby. So come on out before work. The pastors, some of the pastors will be here every single week at 6 a.m. at the church to pray for one another and to pray to God that he might move in our time. So, Wednesday, 7 p.m., prayer night. Please come out. Midshipmen, I know you guys can't come to those things. One of you, hey, take lead and start something on the yard. Don't wait for permission. You got it. Go for it.
look, if we want to be much for God, we must be much with God. Personally, in your own personal life, what does this look like? Will you commit to prayer? Like in your own personal life, will you commit to fervent, frequent prayer? So you know what I do? Here's what I've been practicing. I take my phone, I put a timer on for 10 or 20 minutes, I put my phone a few, a few feet away from me, I'm just going to pray until the alarm goes off. I'm going to pray the promises of God, I'm going to pray that God will move. That time for me is a consecrated time where I'm going to go before my Father in Jesus' name and ask for him to move. Would you do that? Would you commit to that in your own life? Setting a timer for 5, 10, 20 minutes and just committing that time to God, consecrating that time to God. Look, I, I, I dare you to start praying this way. Here's, here's why I can say that confidently. Because six, six months ago, I started praying like this, and I have seen more answered prayer in the last six months in my life than I have my entire life before. If you want to see God move, begin praying His promises with expectation that he is right around the corner to follow through on his promises. If we want to be much for God, we must be much with God. I'll close with one story. Uh, Ethelfrith, pagan uh, Saxon king of Northumbria in 7th century AD, he was invading Wales. He goes up to a high place to survey the land with his his assistant. He sees this group of men praying down below. And he asks his assistant, who, 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 are the, who are these men? What are they doing? And his assistant says, these are the monks of Bangor. Uh, they are there to pray for the success of the army. And he thinks about it for a second, looks, looks out of the horizon, looks back to his, his assistant and gives the order, kill them first. You know, a pagan king understood prayer, I think, better than most of us do. That there's actual consequence. Actual power in prayer. So, God's calling us to be expectant, obstinate in prayer, in Jesus' name, for the mission of God in the world. And look, if we want to be much for God, we must be much with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, What you are calling us to is more than, more than we on our own can handle and, and fulfill. We need you, God. And so we cast ourselves upon you now. We cast ourselves upon Jesus, who is our righteousness, who is our entrance before you. His name is the name that we pray in because he is where our confidence lies, not in ourselves. God, as we cast ourselves upon you, we ask that you would strengthen our faith and increase our confidence to believe in your promises. That you would give us clarity in our heart to understand your heart for us as a father. That you want to give good gifts to your children. That you want to deliver on the promises that you've made to us. That you want to exalt your name in all nations, in all the earth that you want your glory to canvas the globe as the water covers the seas. God, forgive us for how we've been timid and how we've been doubting in prayer. God, send us on this journey together as a community 
to contend for the promises that you've given us so that we might be transformed as a community, ready at all times with the gospel of peace and moving through the world expectant that you're moving before us. God, the harvest, it's plentiful. We want to be your laborers. We are here. Here we are, Lord. Use us and send us and make us a people of prayer, of expectant prayer, that we might be ready to receive your yes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.